I'm thankful to be welcoming to the stage this morning Diana Butler-Bass, a familiar face, a familiar voice. Diana is an author, speaker, independent scholar specializing in American religion and culture, culture, a PhD from Duke, um, widely influential voice in public theology, spirituality, and politics, and founder, creator of an award-winning, super engaging Substack newsletter called The Cottage. Uh, join the conversation at her website for thoughtful commentary, inspiration, and engagement. Thank you for being here with us. Good morning. Oh, I've never preached at the end of the goose before. So this is a new experience for me. Uh, Stan Mitchell asked me uh, what I was going to preach on. And I said, Stan, I'm preaching on the electionary, of course. And he said to me, oh, you Episcopalians, you can never break the rules. And I said to him, okay, I may be preaching from the lectionary, but I guarantee I am going to break the rules. So I begin with today's gospel reading from the Revised Common Lectionary, a book of readings that is shared widely by churches across the world. This text comes from Luke 10, verses 38 through 42. Now, as they went on their way, he entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. So she came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things, and there is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the world. Now, this story, uh, for those of us who are churchgoers and for people who may not have been in church or don't go to church very often, is actually a very familiar story. A lovely, charming tale about Jesus and his encounter with these two sisters. Busy, busy Martha and contemplative Mary. Now, this text on its own would be a great way uh, to end Wild Goose. We have heard a lot about what we need to do. We are worried that there are so many tasks at hand. I can imagine leaving Goose and being Martha. Work, 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 because the time is short. We have to get it all done. But, there's Mary. And what could be the message here is an invitation into what Jesus calls the better part. Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, 
contemplating, listening, receiving the teachings of Jesus. And so we have the charming tale, Martha the doer, Mary the listener, and these sisters with Jesus saying, Mary has chosen the better part. And that's the sermon that I'm not going to preach. <laughs> Instead, my sermon is called All the Marys and the Faith that We Have Been Seeking. And in order to enter into the, the point of this text today, I want to begin with just a short story from my own experience, and that is uh, about my daughter. Uh, my daughter, Emma, was born in 1997, and when Richard and I got married, we had just seen the Jane Austen, the, the, what was then, the new version of Emma, the film, and uh, we loved it, and we, we, we found out uh, we were having a, a baby girl, and we immediately knew we wanted to name her Emma. What we didn't know is that Emma would wind up being the most popular girl's name of the year 1997. And uh, what happened as Emma was growing up, as she went to school, there were a plethora of Emmas. Indeed, she, we sent her to a, a small uh, independent uh, school for elementary school and middle school, and there was three, three Emmas, there were three Emmas in her class of some 25 people, and so for the rest of her elementary school career, she would be known as Emma B, as opposed to Emma P, and opposed to Emma S. And what would happen is uh, all through elementary school, we would get the wrong notes, we would get the wrong assignments. People would talk about Emma and they would say, oh, Emma did X, Y, Z, and it was which Emma? Which Emma are you talking about? And that's exactly where this text today should take us. When we hear the story about Martha, busy Martha, and contemplative Mary, a question that we might not think to ask, but one that we should ask, is which Mary? Which Mary is this? Well, you might think you know. Indeed, for many years, I thought I knew. I have preached any number of sermons at churches all across North America about how this Mary and Martha story is related to another story, a story in John chapter 11, a story about Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus who live in a place called Bethany. Indeed, if you go to many co uh, commentaries on the Luke 10 passage, on the Mary and Martha charming story, those commentaries will begin literally by saying, this is a story of Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, Mary and Martha of Bethany. But you know, if you actually look at the Bible, which would be really good, especially from someone who is writing a commentary, um, you will see that the words in Bethany are never mentioned in the Luke text. Uh, 
Indeed, if you look at a map, uh, Bethany is actually a town, a village, in the opposite direction of which Jesus is traveling in this portion of the Gospel of Luke. And all the text says is Mary and Martha of a certain village. And then you get this little interesting identification of Martha. And it says, Martha welcomed Jesus to her home. And what's fascinating about just that little phrase, just that small phrase, Mary and Martha are sisters in a very patriarchal society. If they had a brother, that line would say, and Martha welcomed Jesus to her brother's home. Because Martha doesn't own a house. It's not Martha's home unless it is Martha's home. And the only way it's Martha's home is if Martha has no husband, no father, and no brother. And so, this story that we have in Luke 10, this story that we have seemingly conflated with the story in John chapter 11, where there are two sisters named Mary and Martha, and they have a brother named Lazarus, and they do indeed live in a place called Bethany. If it was the same family, it's very confused. It's in the wrong place, and it's not called by the right name. What we actually have here is two stories which our imaginations have run together, which our tradition has run together, which even commentators have run together, that are actually two different stories about two different families. This is as if people came home uh, from school and said, Emma Bass did something, 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 and it was actually Emma Priesing. That becomes a problem when you get the cast of characters wrong. And so the question is, well, then, who is this Mary? Instead of spending a lot of time talking about Mary of the four short verses in Luke, I want to run over to the confused text of John chapter 11. John chapter 11 opens with a very simple sentence. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. Okay, now there we have it, clearly defined, Bethany. Not a certain village, the village of Bethany. The village of Mary and her sister Martha. That's the opening sentence of John chapter 11. And you might think to yourself, oh my gosh, well what's, what's important about that. Let me tell you the story of my friend, Elizabeth Schrader, who is a PhD student at Duke University right now, working on a doctorate in New Testament studies. Years ago, uh, Elizabeth, I, we call her Libby, Libby was living in New York City where she is a singer-songwriter. 
Libby is a cradle Episcopalian with a very lively faith life. She just adores the church. She loves liturgy. She loves praying with and to the saints. And one day, uh, Libby walked into a church garden in the city of New York, seeking sort of refuge from the city, and sat down to pray. And as she prayed, she heard a voice. And the voice said, follow Mary Magdalene. Now, Libby usually doesn't hear voices when she's sitting in gardens praying, and so this was pretty startling to her. And she wrote a song about this. It's actually called The Magdalene. You can look it up on YouTube, or I think it's on Vimeo, actually. You can look it up on the internet, and you can listen to it. And that's what happened, is she wrote this incredible song about Mary Magdalene. But then, something deeper started nagging at Libby, and she thought, well, I don't think I was just called to write a song. I think I need to learn more. And so here she is, an Episcopalian living in New York City, and she thought, where do I learn more about the Bible? And she calls up General Theological Seminary in New York City, which is the Episcopal Seminary there. And she says, I need to learn more about Mary Magdalene. How do I do that? And uh, I have no idea what the person in the admissions department said exactly to her, but they did tell her that she could come to general and that she could earn a degree, a master's degree, in New Testament if she liked. And she said, oh, I want to do that. I feel called to do that. And so Libby signed up for the New Testament program where she ran into a wonderful New Testament professor who taught her Greek and Coptic and Aramaic and all the stuff and began to teach her how to translate the New Testament. And Libby was off to the races as a master's degree student in New Testament. Well, she couldn't get Mary Magdalene off of her mind. And when it came to writing her final paper for her master's degree, she asked uh, Deirdre Good if she could write it on John chapter 11 and Mary Magdalene. And Deirdre said, absolutely. And then, Deirdre is the New Testament professor, uh, and then she said, do you know that these texts have lately become available um, digitized? And so if you want to study Mary Magdalene, I want you to look at the early poss possible, earliest possible New Testament texts and try to say something new about them. And so Libby looked up Papyrus 66, which is the oldest and most complete text we have of the Gospel of John. It has, it, it's dated around the year 200. Now, this is what happens when you put a set of new eyes on an old text. Papyrus 66 have been sitting in a library for a very, 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 very long time. We've had it for a while, um, but you had to go to it in order to see it. And there was Libby sitting in a library in New York City, and Papyrus 66 came to her. This is a, a, a historic kind of moment in New Testament studies, when any one of us could have access to texts that have been only 
uh, text that people could use if they had a lot of money, a lot of degrees, and a lot of time to travel. And so here's Libby sitting in the library looking at the text and she sees this first sentence. Now, and it's in Greek, of course. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Mary. And Libby said, what? That's not what my English Bible says. My English Bible says, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany the village of Mary and her sister Martha. But the Greek text, the oldest Greek text in the world doesn't say that. The oldest Greek text in the world says, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, at the village of Mary and his sister Mary. There are two Marys in this, this, chap, this verse. And Libby went, what the heck? What is going on here? And she started digging into the text, zooming in on it to try to see what she could see over the digitized version in the internet. And lo and behold, Libby noticed something that no New Testament scholar had ever noticed. And that is, in the text, where it had those two Marys, the village of Mary and his sister Mary, or, and, and, and her sister Mary, the text had actually been changed. In Greek, the word Mary, the name Mary, is basically spelled like Maria in English, M-A-R-I-A. And the I, the Greek letter I, is the letter iota. And it looks basically like an English I. Libby could see by doing this textual analysis that the letter I had been changed to the letter TH in Greek, theta that somebody at some point in time had gone in over the original handwriting and actually changed the, the second Mary to Martha. And not only had that person changed the second Mary to Martha, but this, that person had also changed, is, the way it comes out in English, it says the village of Mary, not, that would have stayed the same, and her sister Martha. Someone had also changed that her or that, that her was originally a his, and they had changed it to a her. And so while the original text is a kind of confused and not very good sentence, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the at the village of Mary and his sister Mary. It's almost like they're sort of heightening the fact that Lazarus has this sister Mary. They lived in this village together, and Mary is Lazarus's sister. They had changed it to read, Mary and her sister Martha. And Libby sat in the library with all of this and it came thundering at her, the realization that sometime in the fourth century, someone had changed the oldest text of the Gospel of John and split the character Mary 
into two. That Mary became Mary and Martha. She went through the whole manuscript of John chapter 11 and John chapter 12, and lo and behold, that editor had gone in at every single place and changed every moment that you read Martha in English, it originally said Mary. The editor changed it all so that the story becomes a story, a charming story, about Lazarus and the resurrection and his two lovely sisters, Mary and Martha. Oh yeah, I remember seeing them in Luke chapter 10. They are not in Luke. This is some editor's idea of doing what Pete Enns told us this morning. Harmonizing the text did not just start a couple hundred years ago. Somebody in the fourth century decided this was very confusing and this John fellow had bad Greek. And so he went in there to fix it. And he fixed it. He fixed it so good that we have been telling this story wrong ever since. Every one of the pronouns has changed. Every time it says sister, he changed it to a plural sisters. And Libby has conclusively proven that in Papyrus 66, this fiddling around with the text did indeed occur. Now, if you can imagine this, finding this as a master's degree student when you have just barely learned Greek is, a, is an amazing sort of discovery. Uh, Libby wrote her master's thesis on it. It was so interesting as a master's thesis as she proved this textual manipulation uh, that Harvard Divinity School found out about it. And they said, can we excerpt your, your master's thesis and turn it into an article? And so here's this brand new master's and New Testament student who gets her very first ever professional article published uh, by the Harvard, Harvard Divinity Journal. And from there, someone noticed her article. And that someone is the Nestle Allen Translation Committee of the Greek New Testament an organization that is located in Germany, and as I say that, these are the guardians of the Greek New Testament. They are as stuffy as you can imagine. They are basically a whole bunch of very old German men who have spent their entire lives making sure the Bibles that we have in English and all the other languages around the world are the closest and most precise Bibles that we can get to the original manuscripts. And so they call Libby to Germany to present her research to them. And over the course of a couple days, they listen to her and they look at all the evidence that she's compiled. And at the end, they say, well, we might need to change something here. And so as we are speaking, there is a debate going on in the highest circles of New Testament studies 
as to whether or not Libby's research should turn into a very long footnote, and all you preachers will be reading in your next edition of the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible in English, or if they should change John chapter 11 and John chapter 12 and take Martha out. Now, that is probably one of the most radical suggestions I have ever heard in New Testament criticism. And of course, in order to take Martha out, they wanted more evidence. I heard some people yelling in the background, don't take Martha out. Everybody always says that, but I love Martha in, in, in Luke chapter 10. It's two different stories, it's two different families. Martha will stay forever. In Luke chapter 10, she's lovely, Jesus loved her, and so she stays there. But she shouldn't necessarily be here. And so people have begun to do other research pursuing uh, Libby's, uh, Libby's work. The interesting things that have developed since, Tertullian, one of the most misogynistic of all of the ancient church fathers, um, actually wrote a bit of a commentary on this, on this passage in John chapter 11. And he's writing in 230, whatever year Tertullian is, he's very early. And when he gets to this chapter, he says, Mary confessing him, Jesus, to be the son of God. Oh, wait a second, in my Bible it says Martha did that. It says a little later on that Jesus was talking to Martha. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had not been here, my brother would have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. And Jesus said to Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and life. Oh my gosh, one of the most important lines in the whole of the Gospel of John. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus asked this woman. And in this text, your English Bible, Jesus says that to Martha. Do you believe this, Martha? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the one who has come into the world. Tertullian said that that was Mary. There was no Martha in that passage according to Tertullian. And that passage begins with a story about how Martha runs out to meet Jesus, but Mary is so upset that poor Mary stays home because she can't possibly face Jesus. Egeria, a fourth century pilgrim to the Holy Land, she writes in her diary, which is one of the most important uh, diaries we have from the ancient world, from any ancient Christian. Uh, she writes in her diary that her pilgrimage group got to the church in the place where Mary, the sister of Lazarus, ran out to meet the Lord. So Tertullian doesn't mention Martha. Egeria. There is no mention of a Martha. Indeed, the story turns into a story of Mary. And this is what we're now looking at in the Gospel of John. Is that 
John 11 is about Lazarus and one woman, one sister, Mary. Now the interesting question is, well, why in the world did this editor split Mary into two women? Well, the editor could have been a guy with sort of literary sense, and he just didn't like John's Greek. And so he was fixing it. Or he could have been a person who was just a little worried about how does this story fit with that story that Lucas told? Maybe it makes more sense if it's a story about Mary and Martha and not just a story about Mary. So that person could have had benign motives or not. That little piece that I just read to you, there are two Christological confessions in the gospel. One of those Christological confessions happens in the synoptic gospels. It happens in Mark, it happens in Luke, and it happens in Matthew. Who utters the Christological confession in those three gospels? Anybody, anybody remember? Peter, exactly. Peter and Jesus have a conversation and Jesus turns to Peter and says, who am I? And Peter actually says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus turns around and says to him, you are Peter. Upon this rock, I will build my church. The other Christological confession is in the Gospel of John. And until this point, it has belonged to a minor character named Martha that we didn't even know who she was. Jesus raises her brother from the dead, and they have this conversation, and then finally this woman says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who is coming into the world. Pretty much exactly the same words that Peter has uttered in the Synoptic Gospels. And then Martha disappears from history. Unimportant, unremembered, who is this? But if it is Mary, the Mary who shows up in John chapter 11 is not an unremembered Mary, not just one of a plethora of Marys in the third grade class. This Mary has long been suspected of being the other Mary, Mary Magdalene. Is it really true that the other Christological confession of the New Testament comes out of the voice of Mary Magdalene? That the Gospel of John gives the most important statement in the entirety of the New Testament, not to a man, but to a woman, and to a really important woman who will show up later. Come on, bring it up as the first witness to the resurrection. You see how these two stories work together. In, J in John chapter 11, Lazarus is raised from the dead, and who is there but Mary Magdalene? And at that resurrection, she confesses that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And then you go just 10 chapters later, and who is the person at the grave? And the... the she mistakes him at first, thinks he's the gardener, turns around and he says, Mary. And she goes, Lord. It 
is Mary Magdalene. It is Mary Magdalene. Now you might say to yourself, well, I thought she was from Magdala, not what is this Bethany place? Well, that's the last little piece of biblical scholarship I want to let you in on this morning. There is a debate going on right now about where Mary Magdalene is from. A lot of people, especially any of you who have ever been to the Holy Land, you might have gone to the little village that's right on the Sea of Galilee, and there's a church there, the Church of Mary Magdalene. And some very nice tourist guide has said to you, this is the place that Mary Magdalene is from. Well, there's a really weird problem about that. That village wasn't known as Magdalene in the first century. And so that's something they forget to tell you on the tour. And nobody is quite sure where that village would be if there was a village called Magdala. Um, instead of Mary being from this nice village, there is good evidence to suggest that she was from somewhere else. And this text begins to suggest she is from Bethany. Magdala, when we call her Magdalene, Mary Magdalene, is not Mary from Magda, Magdalene. Instead, it's a title. The word Magdala in Aramaic means tower. And so now you get the full picture. In the synoptics, Jesus and Peter have a discussion. And in that discussion, Peter utters the Christological confession. And as a result of the Christological confession, Jesus says, you are Peter the rock. In the Gospel of John, Mary and Jesus have a conversation. And Mary utters the Christological confession. And she comes to be known as Mary the Tower. In the New Testament, we are looking at an argument in the early church. Peter the rock or Mary the tower? The John story got changed. The John story has been hidden from our view. And yet, somehow, all those years ago, Mary uttered those words, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who is coming into the world. When Libby told me this story, we were sitting in a Starbucks in Alexandria, Virginia, and I started to cry and I couldn't stop. She had just told me a story that I always intuited existed. 
when she told me the pieces and how they fit together, and as soon as she said, marry the tower, I said, I know, I know this to be true. This is the truest thing I have ever heard about the gospel. That Mary is indeed the tower of faith. That our faith is the faith of that woman who would become the first woman to even announce the resurrection. Mary the witness, Mary the tower, Mary the great. And she has been obscured from us, she has been hidden from us, and she has been taken away from us for nearly 2,000 years. This is not a Dan Brown novel. This is the Nestle Allen translation commitment of the Greek New Testament. And we are living in a moment of most radical transformation in the understanding of the gospel accounts of who Jesus Christ is and who holds authority and where the witnesses are that the church has lived in since the first two centuries. The feast day of Mary Magdalene just happens to be this coming Friday. And so I wanted to tell you to celebrate with abandon, to celebrate thinking about this story that I have just shared with you, all the Marys. Don't mix them up. Don't mix them up. We can leave here and be thinking of the lectionary text, and it is a beautiful text, and it is a charming story, and we, I'm not getting rid of Martha from Luke. For those of you who have identified with Martha over the years, nobody's taking away your Martha story. It is still a charming story of activism and contemplation, and it has a lot to do with what we have just gathered here to do over the last four days. You can take that message with you, Hold it in your heart and know that the scripture speaks to it. Take rest as you're working towards justice. Or, or perhaps and, you can take with yourself a question. What if it hadn't been hidden What if Mary and John chapter 11 hadn't been split into two women? What if we'd known about Mary the Tower all along? What kind of Christianity would we have if it just wasn't based on, Peter, you are the rock, and upon this rock I will build my church? But what if it was, Mary, you are the tower, and by this tower we shall all stand? This year at the Goose, I invite you to imagine. Imagine that possibility that is opening before us, never visible to our ancestors, since that text was first altered hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, more than a millennia ago. What does that church look like?
What does a Christianity of Mary the Tower look like? And what in the world might that, that form of faith have to say to this moment of crisis in which we live? I do not know the answers to that question. But what I do know is that all of this matters. And that to open it up with you all here, my friends, who I know can receive this story as world-bending as it is, and imagine with me the first sign we saw when we drove into Wild Goose. Imagine. The last words you're getting from me. Imagine. Imagine.